0: good to see everyone today. Um, I know Kurt gave uh, um, a detailed update last Sunday about Ben Sander and, uh, you know, so I'll just say that things are progressing in a positive direction. Um, It it was either later on Sunday or it was on Monday that uh, Ben got out of the hospital. So he had spent, you know, a week in the hospital with COVID and and, uh, and we have seen him, he made an appearance at the office this week, and, and uh, he's pretty weak. He's, uh, uh, it's going to take him some time to get his wind back, to be able to breathe regular and all of this. And uh, so, you know, we don't have any projections as to when we'll see him back on stage, uh, but I don't necessarily think that'll be anytime real soon. So... But it's good news that he's doing better, he's improving, he's gaining strength. So we want to thank all of you for your prayers that you've been praying for him. Now, on another matter, I also want to throw this out, and we really weren't aware of the details of any of it, of what was happening uh, until during the third service last Sunday. But one of our own here in the church, Sean Hartley, uh, who is a fireman, he and his family have been a part of the church for years. Um, he had an accident and a head injury um, while at work and uh, rushed to KU Med. And uh, uh, this week's been a pretty rough week for the family. And those of you that get prayer emails, you have uh, been made aware of the situation. For those of you that don't and would like to be a part of the prayer support of this church, what I would encourage you to do is maybe right there on your connection card is make a note that you want to be added to the prayer email group um, and Phil sends out uh, prayer emails every Wednesday or Thursday, somewhere right around that time, and you'll be included on that list, okay? But uh, the word on Sean is, uh, because he wasn't wasn't responsive, you know, for multiple days this week, but the last 36 hours or so, uh, there's been some really positive reports coming out, and he's answering questions. He's able to move you know, his, his uh, arms, his legs, and, and all of that. His memory is there except for this last week. Um, so anyway, thank you for all of you who have been praying for Sean and for his family during a very trying week, okay? All right. Let's jump into things here today. We are uh, ramping up to Christmas, obviously. This whole month in our Sunday services, we're talking about different topics that, whether you recognized it or not, are part of the Christmas story. And uh, so today we're going to be focusing our attention there too. But initially, as we kind of get the gears turning here, I want to make a couple of comments regarding angels. Angels are a part of the biblical account. You cannot be a serious Bible student, you know, and open your Bible and spend any time reading without recognizing the fact that angels are referenced. They're found in the very first three chapters of the Bible, of Genesis. They're found in the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and there are references to angels scattered throughout all of the, the other 64 books of the Bible. They, um, and, and just for clarification's sake, I'm gonna say this, this, well, I'll just say it, that angels are a totally separate created being, okay? Just there, for some reason, there seems to be this misunderstanding, and perhaps certain movies or something have contributed to this. But angels are not human beings, people that were human here on earth, and then they died and they went to heaven and they became angels. That is not where angels come from. Angels and human beings are totally separate created beings. Angels have always been angels, okay? And and so God created mankind, but God also created um, a group of beings that we refer to as, that are referenced in the Bible as angels. Well, not surprisingly, these angels are referenced uh, multiple times as relating to the Christmas story. They make multiple appearances, and I'm not going to try to back up and go through and touch on each appearance that an angel made as it related to the Christmas story, but I'm pointing this out so as to say that God, when God dispatches an angel to carry a message, you can count on it that something big is about to go down, or something big just went down. All right, and and that certainly is a part of this whole Christmas story, is that God sent angels at different on different occasions to deliver messages to different people, but. It was all being driven by the fact that something really big was going down. And God had an important message that He wanted delivered, and He used an angel to deliver it. Now, the one reference, uh, the that passage that I do want to uh, draw your attention to is this one where an angel went to speak to shepherds out in the field. This is right after the birth of Christ. Luke chapter 2, Luke's gospel is the one that people, I think, by and large, use the most when they're reflecting on the Christmas story. And so we're just going to look at these two verses. The angel, or these three verses, the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Okay, so this is a message that an angel was delivering to the shepherds out in the field, announcing the birth of a baby. Now, it hardly seems that that would be noteworthy because that um, was such a commonplace thing then as it is today that I don't think it would even make the front page on a newspaper. You know, the birth of a baby. But this was different. Oh, this was so different. Because this was no ordinary baby. And part of the irony of all of this is that I don't think the angels, much less the angel who delivered this message to the shepherds, um, really fully grasped what it was that was going down. I I think the angel understood certain parts of it but I don't think the angel understood entirely what was actually playing out. They obviously knew something big was happening because several of them had been dispatched on different occasions to deliver a message to Mary or to Joseph or to the shepherds and and the like. Um, but, But I believe that the angels were struggling to connect the dots as to what does all this add up to? What what exactly is going to be happening here? It was rather obvious that God had something big that was happening here, and the details, though, um, weren't real clear in regards to what it was that God had up his sleeve. Let me show you this passage um, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10, 11, and 12. Now, before I actually show you on the screen those three verses, I want to... I want to kind of show you the context, the six preceding verses, verses 3 to 9, that are leading up to it. In those verses, Peter, as he begins writing this letter to scattered Christians due to persecution, he starts talking about how we are born again. So that's part of what he references in this first chapter is the new birth that we have. And he explains that that is due to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how the new birth is possible. And so now, as believers, we all have an inheritance that uh, we're going to receive. It's an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. Um, And the key to all of this is our faith. Our faith that shields us and our faith that saves us as a matter of fact peter goes as far as to say that because of that the faith that we have is of more value than gold okay so don't don't you know think lightly about the faith that you have in your life it has incredible value All right, so after he says all that about being born again, the inheritance, the resurrection of Christ, and uh, uh, the significance and importance of the faith that we all share in, then that's when he says this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care And how the prophets were the ones who kept dropping the hints. We call them Messianic prophecies. But they were basically hints. Hints of this is going to happen, this is going to happen. And this is all hundreds of years in advance. Hints like it's going to happen in Bethlehem. There's going to be a birth in Bethlehem. And he's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to be called Emmanuel. He will be preceded by a messenger. We know him as being John the Baptist. He's going to end up teaching in parables. He's going to be betrayed by a friend, Judas Iscariot. Doesn't mention Judas Iscariot, but it says it will be a friend of his. He will be sold for 30 pieces of silver. He will be silent before his accusers. He will be mocked and he will be spit upon. His hands and his feet, they will be pierced. All of those hints, in addition to a whole lot more hints along those lines, is what the prophets were referencing. Seems like it's a it involves a lot of detail. But they had a hard time piecing it all together. It was like a puzzle to them. And they had no picture they could work off of. And so they weren't really sure. How do all these things work together? How do they fit together? What exactly... Is it that is going to happen, and what is it going to look like? And that's what Peter is saying there. He's saying about the prophets, they searched intently and with the greatest care. They weren't haphazard in the way that they were trying to draw conclusions. They were being very detailed about this, and yet they were still coming up short in fully understanding what is it that God is doing here. All right, so here's the way verse 12 ends. It's like this little phrase that is attached on the end of the bigger paragraph. It ends like this. Even angels long to look into these things. So what Peter is saying is that even angels are sitting on the edge of their seat. They're trying to figure this out. The word look look into these things is the same word that was used when Peter and John got to the tomb on Easter Sunday, the first Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And they they stood there at the entrance of the tomb and they were looking in the tomb. They were studying it. They were trying to, you know, kind of see through the darkness to see what was in the tomb. It's the very same word. So it's like the angels aren't just giving a passing glance toward these things. No, the angels are studying this. They too are trying to figure it out. Kind of The picture that I've got in my mind's eye is that the angels are kind of like on tiptoe looking over the shoulder of God trying to piece together what exactly is happening here. And sure, they understood parts of it, but they didn't understand all of it that was happening. This is why you'll read in books like Ephesians and Colossians, you'll read the phrase, the mystery of the gospel. That's why that word is being used, is because it was a mystery to man and angels alike as far as understanding exactly what was going down. But even with that being the case, the angel that appeared before the shepherds used these words, I will bring you. Or I bring you good news of great joy. The word great, literally in the original language, is the word mega. I don't know that I need to explain what mega means. Because it meant the same thing then as it does today. The angel was saying, I bring you good news of big, huge amounts of joy. This is something special, is basically what the angel was saying. So why? Why is it such big news? That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning, breaking that down. I don't intend for this to be an exhaustive study. I'm not that smart to be able to give you an exhaustive study on this. But, but I do want to share with you five answers to the question, why is this such a big deal? you know, that the angel was talking about, good news, mega joy here, you know, when announcing the birth of Christ. First of all, it's because God was revealing himself to us. And this was no small thing. The Bible makes it clear that no one has ever seen God. That phrase actually is found in the Bible multiple times. No one has ever seen God. Now, there were times, if you go way back in the Bible, that um, God made his presence felt in the form of a pillar of cloud, remember that, or a pillar of smoke, you know, he, he did that, or a pillar of fire, you know, he did that, or a gentle whisper at the entrance of a cave, or a burning bush, but none of those things actually represented God. But, but, but that's how God, you know, um, um, made his presence felt. One time Moses, you know, he had the courage uh, to ask God, can I see you? I want to see you. And this is the way that played out in Exodus 33. God said, you cannot see my face, For no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you will see my back. But my face shall not be seen. So here Moses is, a man that was used greatly by God, And he's just kind of asking, let's call it a personal favor from God. He wants to get a glimpse of God. And that is God's response to him. No one has ever seen God. Now, we do get the idea of how creative and how powerful God is by studying creation around us. You know, we can look up into the night sky, especially if we get away from the city. We look up at the night sky and we see the stars and the constellations and all of that. And, you know, um, thanks to the Hubble telescope, we can see even further into space. And we're um, coming to the realization, I have for a number of years now, that uh, we have no clue how many galaxies uh, actually exist. You know, Before the Hubble telescope, people actually thought they had a rough idea of how many galaxies. But now, since we can see uh, so much further without the atmosphere clouding our vision, um, we can't count the number of galaxies, the vastness of the universe. We get an appreciation for how big of a God we serve and how powerful of God. He was able to create all that. But we can also go kind of to the other extreme and we can study the intricate design of a flower petal or the wing of a dragonfly. And we can look at at all of the detail of design that is found in something so small. Paul referenced all of that in Romans 1 when he said, ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky Though uh, through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. So we can certainly know some things about God by studying creation because we can see his fingerprints on creation, but that doesn't help us to know God in a personal way. Oh, but that was remedied through Jesus's appearance. Last Sunday Kurt used this verse in his message, John chapter 1 verse 1. It's interesting how John begins his gospel. He tells the Christmas story, but he kind of takes a different route than all the other uh, gospel writers. What he actually says here is something that causes us to have flashbacks to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and that's all intentional. John says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's he's skipping over um, Bethlehem and what happened in Bethlehem. He's going way back to the very beginning. There was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. And then a few verses later, the word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed his glory. The glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So this one who was way back in the beginning now has clothed himself in human flesh. Oh, but John continues, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. There's that phrase again. That comes up several times in the Bible. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. You see, this is part of why the angel was saying, I bring you good news of of great mega joy, is because God was about to reveal himself to us through Christ, The more we look at Jesus, the more we know about God. On the last full day of Jesus' life, right before he was going to be arrested, um, he had an exchange with his disciples. One disciple in particular was bold enough to ask a question and it kind of turned the conversation to something that I'm thankful is in Scripture today. John chapter 14, Jesus says this. If you had really known me, you would know who my father is from now on you do know him and have seen him philip said lord show us the father and we will be satisfied jesus replied and i can just see the expression in jesus's eyes when he's answering philip he's he says have i been with you all this time philip and yet you still don't know who i am you know philip's asking show us the father and Jesus is like, what have you been looking at? <laughs> who have you spent the last three years with? I mean, it's basically his response. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? See, this, this is a major part of why Jesus came into the world, is to reveal God to us by studying the life of Jesus you will be growing in your knowledge and in your understanding of God but there's more there's more that that uh, can be said about why this is such a matter of big news it's because he was giving light to the world Jesus coming into the world was providing light for the world Here's a passage that ties together these first two thoughts, uh, the one about revealing God to us and this one about light. It's again in John's gospel. By the way, uh, the reason we're going to see more references to John's writing than the other gospels this morning is because John did take it upon himself to kind of build on the theme of the deity of Christ. That was part of what he wanted to deliver a message loud and clear that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so, so, so many of these passages. Now, the others did reference that, but John, he, he went into more detail. So here it is, John chapter 12. It says, then Jesus cried out, the one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. Now, Kirk talked last Sunday about, um, I believe it was last Sunday, he talked about how light dispels darkness. And, you know, and there was certainly darkness that, that people couldn't really understand who God was and all. And that's part of what Jesus was doing. Being the light of the world, he was helping to open our eyes. The world is filled with darkness. Um, And that is, you know, a reference to uh, sin and the effects of sin that that has had uh, on the world that we find ourselves living in This is why we read in John chapter 1, right in the middle of all of that, where it says the word was back in the beginning and the word took on flesh and all of that. Right in the middle of all of that, it made this statement. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So that's very much a part of John's version of the Christmas story. Later, John records this in John chapter 8. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. My wife, Colette, has a condition. She's had this condition for a number of years. We really don't know, the, and I say we, the doctors really don't know exactly what caused this. They have um, some guesses, some theories, but, but they just don't know. Um, in one of her eyes, she has partial blindness. It's in her left eye. And, and when I say partial blindness, I mean it's like when she would look at you and center her attention like on your face, there's all kinds of spots in that picture that are just blank, that aren't filled in. It might involve half your face, you know, that she can't see in that eye. It's just, you know, kind of this random pattern of dots of just blindness in that eye. And so sometimes when we're watching a movie, I'll look over, you know, at her and, and, uh, uh, and where she typically sits and I typically sit. Um, I'm seeing her left side. And I, I will see that she's actually holding her left eye lid down. And watching the movie with her right eye because, and I've talked to, asked her before about this, it's because it distracts her so much, those blank spots. When she's reading a book or on a Kindle or something like that, at times, you know, she'll be covering that eye and just reading with one eye. Um, it hasn't affected her driving I mean we did intentionally go get a car that has that blind spot you know system on the mirrors and stuff just to help you know for her to be able to make double sure that she is seeing especially when she looks over here to the left side Um, but uh, but it is a form of blindness in one eye and it hasn't been completely explained how all that came about well That kind of blindness is physical. And it's obvious when you have it. You know it when you have it. But what these passages are talking about is a form of spiritual, it's a spiritual condition, a spiritual form of blindness. People who can go about living their whole lives in a manner of speaking, groping around trying to find their way, and what's sad is that they're totally unaware of the issue. They don't even know that they're blind. They don't even know that they're really not seeing what they need to see. Now, for me personally, that described me over 40 years ago. Before I ever heard the gospel of Christ, before I was ever introduced to Jesus as my Savior, I was blind. I didn't know that I was blind. It wasn't until the light dispelled the darkness, and helped me to be able to see. And I imagine that same sort of thing can be said of many of you. Well, that's part of the reason why Jesus came into the world, was to give light to the world. Another reason why this was such big news is because he was about to destroy the work of the devil. What is the work of the devil? Ultimately, the work of the devil is sin. Ultimately, let me show you a verse that touches on that. Again, one of the writings of John, this time it's in his first letter, chapter 3. It says, when people keep on sinning, and what that is meaning when you study the tense and everything of that phrase, is that when people sin and they keep committing the same sins, they just keep a pattern of doing the same thing that is outside of God's will over and over and over When people keep doing that, it shows that they belong to the devil, who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. So it says it right there in that verse, that this is part of the reason that Jesus came, was to destroy the work of the devil. The thought actually goes further than that, though. It's not just that Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil, uh, well, let me just show you. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, that's talking about us as human beings. We have flesh and blood bodies. Since we have flesh and blood, he too shared in their, our, humanity. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That shouldn't be a capital H on him there. Uh, that should be a small H him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So it wasn't just that Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came into the world to destroy the devil himself. That's what the writer of Hebrews is pointing out. The devil has had his run for far too long. Enough's enough. enough. And because of what Jesus accomplished here, the devil's days are now numbered. And the thing is, the devil knows that, and we know that. This is part of what Paul references in the last chapter of the book of Romans when he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It was all because of what Jesus did when Jesus came into this world that Paul is able to make that statement. The very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, says, therefore rejoice, O heavens. And the heavens have reason to rejoice because the devil has been defeated because of what Jesus has done and all. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has gone down to you, having great wrath, why? because he knows that he has a short time. You see, the devil has been destroyed, and the clock is ticking. His time is running out. We know that, and he knows that. And he is furious, as that passage is pointing out, you know, because of that. When you read the end of this book that we call the Bible, and you're reading in the book of Revelation, the message is very loud and very clear. That his day is coming when he will be done away with once and for all. And that's part of the reason that Jesus came into this world. And that is a big part of the reason why this is mega joy worthy. This is big news. Well, here's another reason. Because he would fully sympathize with our weaknesses. This is, again, uh, explaining from another angle why Jesus coming into the world, him being born in Bethlehem, was such a big deal. It was so that he would be able to sympathize with our weaknesses. There's only one verse I'm going to show you on this, uh, but it does do a good job of helping to to illustrate it. But first, I want to ask the question, do you find yourself struggling at times? As far as living the life that God has called you to live, Being the person that you know God wants you to be, as far as being a kind person, as far as being a selfless person, as far as being a person that serves others and honors God with your attitude, do you ever find yourself struggling with all of that? I think all of us will have to say we have our moments, right, where we do struggle and we seem to be coming kind of, as they say, up on the short end of things because we keep tripping up, stubbing our toe, falling on our face. Yeah. Well, even though deep down inside we know what we ought to be, at times we all are going to come up short. And that might at times be our attitude. Our attitude may be less than desirable. It may be at times our words. We want our words to be encouraging and uplifting to the people around us. But you know what I'm talking about when I reference those moments that our are words aren't helpful and uplifting. They're harsh and sharp. We know that we need to be more selfless, but if we're going to be truly honest with ourselves, we have to admit at the end of some days, this was a very self-centered day that I live today. I was just thinking of myself. Yeah. Well, here's the thing that I want you to see. Now, I need to add a thought here because I didn't notice this till early this morning. Um, all the words here on the screen are correct, but the numbers are wrong. It's not Hebrews chapter two. It's Hebrews chapter four, verses fifteen and sixteen. So I, I don't know, you know, if that's right on your outline or not. But I, I want to make sure you know. That the passage is in the Bible, but if you look for it in chapter 2, you're not going to find it. It's chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. And here's what it says. For we do not have a high priest, and this is going to be referencing Jesus. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Now, is that reassuring or what? It's saying that Jesus, serving as our great high priest, the ultimate high priest, all of those high priests that are referenced scattered throughout the Old Testament, uh none of them were able really to accomplish what a high priest really is supposed to be all about. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He is the great high priest. And the thing with Jesus is, is that he can sympathize with all of our weaknesses. It's because he took upon himself human flesh. It's because he walked the face of the earth. It's because he was tempted, as it says in the third line there, he was tempted in all the ways as we are, but there is one significant difference. He did not give in to the temptation. He did not sin. There's none of us in here that can claim, oh yeah, me too, you know, me too. I never sin. You can't claim that. I can't claim that if we're going to be truthful, honest on it. But Jesus, he lived a life here on earth, and he was tempted in all the various types of ways that we get tempted in. But with him, he never sinned. And that is what qualified him to offer that perfect sacrifice or to use Old Testament terminology, to offer an unblemished sacrifice in going to the cross on our behalf. He lived a perfect life. But not only did it qualify him to offer that unblemished sacrifice, it also causes him to be able to relate and to sympathize with what it's like being a human being and being tempted in all the various ways that we are tempted. And because he can relate to that now we can draw near, look at the second half of that passage. Uh, now we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, and we'll find mercy and grace because he can relate. He can relate with the struggle that living a life here on earth, the kind of struggle it can be. So yeah, it was a big deal that Jesus was born. Because now he wasn't out of touch in any form or argument. You couldn't use that to describe God. That you're out of touch. You can't relate to all that. Jesus can relate. He, he can sympathize. And here's another reason. And this is our fifth and final one we're going to talk about today. Because now he can rescue us from our sin. If I was listing these in order of impact. Um, I'd probably put this as number one. I'd put it at the top of the list. Um, but but you know that that's I, I just wanted to end with this one. So that's why it's listed as number five. because now he can rescue us from our sin. This represents the ultimate reason for Jesus' coming. You know this is part of what Paul was referencing when he was writing to the young preacher named Timothy in First Timothy chapter one. Paul said, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he tacks on, And I am the worst of them. You know, that's kind of Paul's way of saying, When I look in a mirror, I'm the worst. I've missed the mark the most. Okay, now I don't know literally that he was the worst because I think that probably is somebody in this section. But, um, you know, I, I don't think it was Paul. All right. But but that that's just kind of a personal note he adds in there. I am the worst of them. And he did some horrible things. Um, he did some horrible things. But then the reality is, haven't most of us Done some pretty horrible things in our life. But the point that I, I, I want to draw to your attention in what Paul is saying here is he says that this saying, this expression, it's trustworthy. Wrap your arms around it, grab a hold of it, don't miss this, hang on to this. What? Christ, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I mean, that's the bottom line. That's why Jesus came into this world. This is the ultimate reason for Christmas. This is why when Jesus, at a later time, was walking toward John the Baptist, John said these words. said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John understood. God had revealed to John the Baptist, and so John said those words. This is what the cross is all about. This is why Jesus told Peter, there in the Garden of Gethsemane to put your knife away. Remember when the mob came to arrest Jesus and Peter pulled out a knife and started swinging the knife, cut one guy, and Jesus said, put the knife away. Is because Jesus knew for this very moment he came into the world. And so he didn't want Peter rescuing him because Jesus was in the middle of a mission to rescue us. And so that's why He said, put away your knife. This is why Jesus did not call upon 72,000 angels who were ready and willing at his beck and call to come and deliver him out of the moment. Jesus didn't call upon them because Jesus knew it was for this moment he had come into the world. This is the reason why when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he took in one last deep breath and in the original language it's one word, it's translated in our bibles as three words, but he said "Tetelestai." And then he died. That's translated in our bibles, it is finished. that, that was anything but a cry of defeat. He he was not saying I give up. I'm defeated. I can't hang on any longer. He wasn't saying that. He was saying mission accomplished. The very reason he'd come into the world was being accomplished at that very moment. This is why when Joseph was wrestling with what do I do? My fiance is pregnant, and that's a problem. And he's kind of thinking about how not to embarrass her, but yet kind of in this engagement, an angel appears to Joseph. What does the angel say? The angel says she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. See, this has been God's plan all along even though the prophets were dropping all these hints hundreds of years in advance and they didn't really understand it, even though the angels were sitting on their edge of the seat stretching and trying to look into what it was that was happening on earth because they didn't fully understand. They couldn't piece it all together. I I would go as far as to say that even the devil didn't know what was going to be playing out. Otherwise, I don't think the devil would have played into it the way he did. I mean, he's a fallen angel. So I think he too was on the outside trying to look in, trying to figure all of this out. Who would have ever imagined that this was God's plan to send his son into the world so that he would become a human being and he would offer the ultimate sacrifice that needed to be offered. The only thing that would make it possible for you and I to be delivered. And to have a home reserved for us in heaven. It was all part of the plan of redemption. And in God's mind, it was as clear as day. Even though others around were trying to figure it out. What did the angel say? I bring you good news of mega joy yeah those words are spot on good words this is why it was such big news this is part of the list at least as to why it was such big news for all these reasons and more i like jesus's words what he said in John 10, 10, it's an easy passage to remember. John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus said this, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's how Jesus summarized it. That's why I have come into the world is so that people can live life and they can live the fullness of life that God had intended all along. Just because you have a job, just because you might have a nice, comfortable house, just because you have an active social life, just because you have a full calendar of activities does not mean you are living a full life. Not in accordance with what God intended. You see, what God wants is he wants you to be able to live life on the level he intended all along, not living life down here on this level. It's always been God's intention that you live life on this level and that I live life on this level. And that's why Jesus coming into this world, it needed to happen. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why, you know, it it is such a joyous time. And ultimately, that's why, it's appropriate to wear a smile on your face regardless of what the circumstances are that may be going on in your life right now because you know you're in good hands. God's had a plan all along. We're going to have our time of communion and I'm in fact, I'm going to um, ask that we leave that slide up there during communion, okay? Um, so you can look at it, you can reflect on it During this time of communion, you'll take the cup, you'll um, pull the little um, um, cover off and eat the bread, and then you'll drink the juice and allow that to remind you of the body and the blood of Christ and the sacrifice that he made when he went to the cross on your behalf to purchase your salvation. This is a time that we reflect and we thank him for what he had done But it's also a time that we celebrate. We celebrate what he accomplished. And this is just part of the list of what it is he accomplished. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity today to be able to gather as a body of believers and and together to send up one big thank you. To celebrate the salvation that is found all because of your love and the sacrifice that was made in Jesus Christ. We thank you for that, Lord, knowing full well we don't deserve it. Not a one of us in here do deserve it. But yet that's what grace is all about. And so we're celebrating your grace. We're celebrating your love. We never take it for granted. And as we continue on into this week and six days from now, you know, um, celebrate Christmas, might we not allow all of the rush and hubbub and activities and traveling and out-of-town guests and all of this stuff, might we not allow all of that to crowd out the true meaning of why we're celebrating Christmas? We love you, Lord.